Hello, everybody, and thanks, as always, for listening to the Bomber Brothers Podcast, part of the Pinstripe Alley community of podcasts. Here we are in a new year. It's 2020. I hope everybody had a happy holiday, and of course, with not too much going on around Yankees universe right now, with everyone taking some time off for the holidays and Garrett Cole already being signed, we thought we would just take everyone back through the year that was 2019 and play back some of our favorite interviews and favorite guests of the year. It's really been an incredible year. And first off, Sean and I just want to thank everybody for listening in, downloading, subscribing. It's really been a fun ride. And to get to be able to talk to people like David Cohn and Ryan Rucco and a number of other great authors who wrote fantastic books this year, it's just been a great 2019. And as we say goodbye to 2019, we will listen back on some of our favorite moments from the podcast, and we will see everybody next week in 2020. Again, thanks for listening, and here's the best of 2019. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're joined now by two exciting guests. They're the co-authors of the new book, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. First, we have, of course, former Yankee great, and you can catch him in the Yes booth now, David Cohn. David, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. And also, uh, who else helped write the book and also helped write a book with Derek Jeter, Jack Curry. You can catch him on the Yes Network as well, doing great analysis. Jack, thanks for coming on. No problem. We appreciate you guys having us. So, Jack, can you uh, just walk us through the process of how this book came to be? You know, did it, when did it start out as just an idea and when did it become like, okay, we're doing this and, and how... And was there an effort to make it different from so many other biographies that you see from other former players? Because it really seems like this book took on a, a more unique angle aside from just, you know, this is my story. In, in some way, Ryan, it, it probably started more than 20 years ago because I've been watching David Cohn on the mound for longer than that, maybe a quarter of a century. But speaking in more recent terms, a few years ago, just having listened to David on Yes and obviously working with him on Yes and watching him pitch for so many years, I had this idea of doing a book where you crawled inside the mind of a pitcher. None of us really know what it's like to not have the feel for your slider or, or not know if you're going to be able to throw that splitter and get that movement on it that you want. And just, just to feel desperate out there. And as, as great as David's career was, one of the great things I think about this book is he shows you that there is a vulnerability to major league pitchers even when you're the best of the best you you're going to have some issues on the mound so i approached david in the back of the yankee stadium press box a few years back i I gave him my my little pitch and i waited for his response and it was quick and he said i like the idea let's do it so we started working on it and and i'm glad you said you feel it's different because we we did try to be different because as much as this is a quote memoir and it covers david's career and and it has obviously a million stories from his career and his life. There's also lessons in there. There are philosophies in there. There are theories in there. And then there are stories about Jeter, Mariano, Pettit, uh, Carter, Hernandez, Darling, Strawberry, Gooden. So we tried to take you on a ride through David's career, but we also took some some pit stops away from his career and told about the personal side and, and the human side of, of his life and the game. And David, in, in the book, you talk about how your 93 season is what started your interest in sabermetrics and, you know, more advanced numbers because it was by more advanced stats, your most valuable season. And, you know, how has that helped your seemingly seamless transition into embracing this new data as a color commentator? And is it something you hope catches on with other analysts in the booth who happen to also be former ball players? Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, it's in every front office now. There seems like a race uh, amongst uh, different organizations to play catch-up and then not only play catch-up with their analytics department, but also protect their information as they develop it. I mean, there's so much data out there. I, I really believe that we're still kind of in the Wild West in terms of interpreting a lot of this new data, what makes sense and what doesn't, and what is more valuable than... than than other sorts of reams of data. So, uh, yeah, I think more and more players and broadcasters are starting to to get into the flow a little bit. I think they understand it's the future of the game. Uh, for me, it really did begin back then. Even before that, um, you know, I was 
I was on some Mets teams where I had some 500 records, and uh, I thought I pitched better than that. And I just always was kind of a disgruntled pitcher that felt like one loss record wasn't enough to show the true value of a pitcher, particularly a starting pitcher. And uh, I went to a couple of arbitration cases against the Mets in the early 90s or with my agent, Steve Fear, uh, who was pretty progressive uh, during those years. And he showed me some some different ways to look at things, some groups of numbers, at least the, the type of numbers we had back then, probably the early days of sabermetrics that showed me uh, that we, we can peel back a few layers here and show some true value and try to give credit where credit is due. You also mentioned that uh, Bobby Valentine once asked you in, I think, 2011 if you were possibly interested in joining a coaching staff. And you obviously have the pedigree of personal success on the mound. You now have this you know, progressive mind towards uh, the new data that many coaching staffs want. Have you, has it ever crossed your mind to get back into the game in that form and maybe take on coaching? Or are you, are you set up in the booth right now? Yeah, I really do enjoy broadcasting at this point. You know, I think every year that goes by, I, I, I understand the business a little better. Uh, the rhythm and timing of uh, when to speak, when not to speak. Sometimes just being quiet, sometimes screwed on television. And when to introduce the new metrics and when it's overload. Um, so, uh, you know, I, right now I'm pretty content in what I'm doing. You know, I've had a couple of opportunities to... You know, including Bobby Bobby Valentine's uh, gesture back then to uh, interview for a major league pitching coach job, but I just the timing wasn't right for me when those opportunities presented themselves. But you know, I would never totally close the door. I, mean, I would never say never, uh, but I, I realize how difficult it is to be a major league pitching coach now, and how fully immersed you have to be. It really is a year-round job, and there's so much more that goes into it than say, even 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So I'd have to be ready to be fully committed. But, you know, as I said, I would never say never at this point. You, uh, you, you butted heads with some coaches over the years, whether it be not wanting to stick to a certain delivery or, or strategy about pitch outs and things like that. Can you think of any other Yankees during your time there that were uh, equally hard-headed? Uh, you know, there have been along the way. Uh, uh, the problem is, is that a lot of them get marginalized or get released or get labeled. And uh, once you get a label, or you, when you're trying to uh, to work your way up through the minor leagues, then you, you easily get passed over by other prospects or other players that are deemed more coachable or easier to work with. So I, I feel kind of fortunate that, you know, I was able to uh, push back and, kind of maintain my style while at the same time, you know, I really did have to conform to a certain extent along the way just to, to kind of maintain relationships with, with the organizational pitching coaches. But it was a struggle for me all the way through. I just, uh, I, I always push back. I always, you know, I think it's a good thing to ask questions. It's a good thing to, uh, to try to challenge uh, authority with you, if you believe in your art that you're right, Terry. If you, if you believe in a style that that uh, that you want to, to continue to try to utilize. So, uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, I was fortunate to break through and uh, still kind of maintain the style that I always uh, always felt was right for me. And that's one of the things that Jack covers so well in the book that when I went when I was finally traded to the Mets. It was the first time in my career where they kind of embraced my style. Uh, everybody on that team, from Wally Backman to Keith Hernandez to Gary Carter, just loved uh, the fact that I changed arm angles or threw sidearm sliders. And uh, they embraced me and embraced that style. It was really the first time in my career that I really felt kind of liberated that, hey, these guys not only encouraged me to be me, but uh, they liked the style. And uh, that was just a tremendous feeling for the first time. I think that's one of the reasons why I kind of blossomed with the Mets, uh, and, and certainly in 1988 when I won 20 games. I think that was the culmination of, for the first time in my career, I felt like I was with a, with a group of coaches and players that really embraced me. And, and Jack, when David was pitching, he was going deeper into games than most starters ever would today, of course, uh, being that the game has changed so much. How much of what's changed with starters' innings being limited do you think is due to injury concern? And how much do you think is due to the fact that the live arms in the bullpen um, are ready to take over in the sixth inning now? I think we'd have to say it's a combination of both. I, I, I don't have a, uh, a specific moment in history where, where things changed. I think it started out more as protecting starters. And I think 
it has now morphed into, well, we've got five guys in the bullpen. I mean, I'm thinking of the Yankees who, who throw 95 to 100. Why are we letting our, our pitcher go third time through the batting order? And David does a great job detailing some of this in the book, and he's talked about it on the air as well. There would be games with the Mets, for instance, where he might have 100 pitches in the fifth inning, and he got back to the dugout and took a deep breath and said, okay, I got 30 more pitches. I, I can get this team through seven. Those, those days aren't happening anymore. We've, we've seen examples of pitchers being pulled out with, with no hitters after seven innings and in the 100-pitch neighborhood. And I think David does a good job of explaining in the book how you're never going to know who you're going to be at the 115-pitch mark if you never get a chance to get there. And as important as it is to protect your assets and, and make sure that your pitcher's arms are, are going to be solid for 180 inning season, I do think sometimes protection can seep into coddling. And I, I don't mind seeing a guy get a chance to, to finish out his own his own start. It won't be a complete game anymore. It's almost as if seven innings is, is now the, uh, the new version of a complete game. David, one of the most exciting parts about the book was your first time revisiting your perfect game in a play-by-play manner watching it again with Jack and was I'm wondering was there ever a time on your viewpoint from the mound where you saw a ball put in play obviously there was the great play by O'Neill by Knobloch uh, the ball getting caught in the sun briefly by Ricky Leday. was there ever a point where the ball was put in play and before you turned around you had that mindset of that's it like th- this this run at history is over yeah, you know, I really have to point to the uh, the Jose, Jose Vidroy at bat. Uh, you know, I think it was, you know, the ground ball to Knobloch, that particular play, you know, it was a 2-0 count. I knew I had to throw a strike. Uh, you know, I didn't have a 3-0, a 3-ball count the entire day, and that's the big difference between a perfect game and a, and a no-hitter. You know, a no-hitter, you can you can walk a guy. Or you can, you can, you're not worried about the count as much. And with Jose Vidro, I knew I had to throw a strike. I threw it right down the middle, about knee-high. He smashed it. He hit it very hard. And it, I thought, that's it. The sound off the bat. I thought it was going up the middle for a hit. And Knobloch was positioned well. He, he had good range. He ran over and backhanded the ball. And then, of course, with Chuck at that particular time, that was right in the right in the middle of his throwing woes. And uh, he kind of had the yips a little bit. And, um, you know, he wheeled and dealed and threw a strike to first base. And that was the loudest cheer of the day. I think everybody in the ballpark knew what was going on. And, uh, you know, it was at that point when I felt like I caught a break on a 2-0 fastball that I really had to give in on. And, and it was hit well by Jose Vidro, who was a very good hitter. And uh, when Knobloch made that play, I kind of felt like this might be my day. Speaking of uh, making a big pitch in, in crucial moments, you had uh, you talk about a crucial strikeout to Troy O'Leary in Game Two of the '99 ALCS, which actually happened to be the first playoff game me and Sean ever went to. But um, is, is there is there a single pitch, just one pitch that you made in your career that stands out as what you feel was like your best executed pitch in a big situation, like a certain instance that really stands out where you made your perfect pitch at, at a really high leverage point in a game? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Jack knows me so well. and Jack has a really great understanding of pitching. I sort of joke that Jack and I are kind of pitching nerds. Uh, we both have conversations that go pretty pretty in-depth that might be boring to some people. But there was a particular game when I was traded from the Mets to the Blue Jays, and we faced the A's in, in the, the LCS. And uh, Oakland was a great team. Ricky Henderson was their leadoff hitter. They had the Bash brothers, McGuire, McGuire and Seiko. Uh, uh, the shortstop on that team was Walt Weiss, and there was a, a point in that game where there was um, uh, I, it was a scoring situation. I think there was one out. There's a runner on third. It was uh, a tight game. Um, uh, Walt Weiss uh, ran the count to three and two, and uh, Pat Borders, the catcher, called for a fastball, and I shook off to a slider. And it was probably the best backdoor slider I threw in my career, certainly in a high leverage situation. And, in a big time game and uh, I think that was probably the best slider I ever threw it had really tight spin on it and it broke perfectly uh, over the outside corner and I got Walt Weiss looking on the call third strike and and then Carney Lansford was the next batter and he was the right handed batter and I threw some pretty good sliders to strike him out but uh, that was a big moment uh, you know the Blue Jays we had lost the first game one at home against the A's and uh, that was game two of the LCS in 1992 and 
that sequence to Walt Weiss and us being able to win that game, I think, was probably one of the keys to the Blue Jays being able to, being able to, to get past the A's and then on to the World Series for Canada's first. Jack, um, Cone start in that 99 ALCS with that against O'Leary um, is actually, in my opinion, one of his more underrated performances because even though they're up one nothing, Pedro's looming in game three of that series. Now that you've had the opportunity to go back through his whole career with him, is there one of the starts that stands out as maybe a more underrated performance? Well, that's a great question. It's, I, I don't think it's underrated, but I don't think you can talk enough about David coming back from aneurysm surgery, wondering if his career was over in 1996, doing the rehab and kind of almost shortening up the rehab and saying to the Yankees, I, I don't want to waste any bullets. Let's go. If, I, if I'm going to pitch, I need to pitch now. And then going out to Oakland and throwing a seven-inning no-hitter with his father in the stands. Like I said, it's gotten a lot of attention. People covered it then, and we still talk about it now. But to hear David take me back through those moments and, and the doubt about coming back. and I mean, think about it, guys. You have an aneurysm under your right armpit, and it's, they, they, have a, they graft it back together, and they tell you everything's going to be fine. You're still trying to throw the ball 90 miles an hour, and, and, and David wondered, is, is that thing going to tear open? Now, the doctors assured him, but you still get out there, and I think there's a little bit of doubt. And for him to pitch the way that he did in, in that situation, I, I was at that game, and, and I'll never forget the, uh, the vibe we were feeling in the press box about, is, is this guy really doing this after having been off for a few months? So that, that game really stands out to me. And, and David, you call that the um, most emotional game you ever pitched. And you said you were content with the decision to be removed despite having the no-hitter. But was there any part of you that, that wanted the fight to stay in that game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're, when you're in the middle, middle of the game, uh, you know, I, when you're uh, presented with that decision from your manager, you're not really thinking clearly. You know, I, I, I described to Jack that I was just kind of stunned the whole game. I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like uh, like Jack described. Uh, I couldn't believe this was happening either. I was just so thrilled uh, to be going through it. Uh, the fact that my father, who was my first pitching coach, was sitting right above the dugout, and every time I walked off the inning, I walked off in between innings, I could, I could make eye contact with my father. And, all the way through, yeah. I mean, if, obviously I wanted to stay in that game, but, but Joe Torre commanded such respect, and the way he approached me and the way he described it to me is, is uh, more of a caring decision. Hey, look, we're, we're worried about your health. If I let you go back out for the eighth, you're going to, you know, you get over 100 pitches, then you've got to pitch the ninth as well. And, you know, I, I had only made two rehab starts, and my pitch count was 85 to, to 100 pitches that day. So in order to complete that, that no-hitter, I probably would have had to push well past that point. So I certainly understood the concern, but I think it was the way Joe Torre described it to me and how much respect I had for him. And then he just turned around and walked away. He didn't allow any debate. So I remember just sitting back on the bench and being stunned and not really knowing what to say. And then Mel Stoudemire, the late great Mel, came up to me and, and kind of, uh, once again, uh, kind of uh, just in a nurturing way, just uh, explained to me the decision-making process behind it and that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to win the World Series this year. We're, you know, we're, we've got bigger goals here. You know, uh, personal achievements are as much as a, as a no-hitter would be great. Uh, you know, we've got, we've got bigger fish to fry. Dave, one of the more enjoyable parts of the book was you diving into the dynamic between you, David Wells, and, and Joe Torre, because obviously that they butted heads at times, Wells with a more rebellious nature, and, and you kind of took it upon yourself to help manage that. You guys would share your own hotel room on road trips, and you had uh, you know hosted some parties, which was fun to imagine what that was probably like. Do you have any, uh, any funny stories from that mini party room? I know you said some celebrities and actors um, stopped by, and, and also any stories that you didn't share in the book about your and Mike Stanton's bathroom pranks that you used to pull in the locker room. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the uh, – I mean – it could get pretty boring in a major league clubhouse. So, yeah, I mean, uh, grown men will act like children, that's for sure. And uh, the, the type of humor, obviously, uh, there's communal showers, uh, there's communal bathrooms, so nothing is sacred. You see everything, you do everything, you make fun of everything. Uh, there's so much there uh, that uh, kind of uh, gets into the realm of kind of gross at times. You know, I mean, it, certainly uh, Stanton was, was uh, quite a character and uh as far as Boomer goes in those that year in 1998, 
night, um, you know, after he threw his perfect game and as that summer unfolded, you know, Paul O'Neill's described him as the best pitcher in the American League, really, the rest of the year. And that's kind of how we all viewed it. Every time he took the mound, uh, his confidence grew. And uh, every time we went on a road, we had a lot of fun. And I think I could just see him loose it up. He was the type of guy that needed a pat on the back. He needed a friend. And we, we became very close uh, during that summer. And, yes, uh, uh, on, uh, on certain nights, we had some great parties. I mean, everybody from Charlie Sheen would show up, uh, musicians from Metallica. Lars, the drummer, showed up. I mean, Boomer has uh, a lot of friends in the music industry, and, uh, and, and uh, depending on which city we were in or which uh, which hotel we stayed in, yeah, there was there was always something happening. Always a group of really interesting celebs that showed up, uh, locals as well, friends we met over our years of traveling. And we had some great parties and some late nights, and uh, and uh, you know, it just seemed to really uh, build a close friendship with with. Uh, with Boomer and uh, and his confidence really grew the whole summer, uh, all the way through the World Series. So, you know, it was uh, one of the most remarkable years of my career. And uh, to this day, Boomer and I are still very close uh, because of our friendship during that year. Okay, we're joined now by Bob Clappish. He is a baseball writer for the New York Times and now also for Bleacher Report and also the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, Inside the Empire, a great detailed look behind the scenes of the Yankees' operations and front office management behind Brian Cashman. Bob, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us. Well, I appreciate you having me on, and I sure do love talking about the book, so thank you. And, and another great aspect of this book is the deep dive on the Yankees' process of not just finding international talent, which they've clearly been uh, so effective at given their major league roster as it stands right now, and, and also transitioning those prospects into life in another country, you know, life skills classes. I think you note watching friend, episodes of Friends in the book to help you know, learn English and, and become more acclimated. Do you know of any organization in the league with an operation that big or intricate, or are the Yankees just that far ahead of other teams in baseball? Well, everybody is now, you know, caught on to the fact that you have to groom these kids, especially the ones who come from other countries, impoverished other countries, and they have to be prepared to come to the big leagues, not just in terms of baseball fundamental skills, but socially and culturally and in terms of, of language acquisition. I mean, everybody has caught on to that. But the Yankees were first, and the Yankees still spend more money than anybody else. And the idea of having this, this mini academy in Tampa um, – where you basically are learning to speak not only English, but they're teaching these kids how to speak Spanish. I mean, some of these kids, you know, come to the U.S. with only a second or third grade education, so they can't even read and write in their own native tongue. So the Yankees have gone in, all in, uh, turning these ball players. you know, 60 to 70% of them will never get past double A. But the Yankees have made a full commitment to making them good citizens. So when they're their minor league or professional career is over, they can go back home and have a life. I mean, the Yankees, and one other point that we made in the book is that regardless if you get to, you know, you spend a month in a rookie ball or you spend three years at double A or you get all the way to triple A and still fall short and end up getting released, you have a guaranteed college education. The Yankees will pay for your tuition if the player so desires and that to me is one of the, is one of the there's one thing i never knew and i said i think it speaks so highly of their enlightenment and their forward thinking we're talking with bob clappish the co-author of inside the empire and, and bob you mentioned that one of the biggest driving forces behind the book was uh brian cashman's availability and, and peering into the mind of one of the great general managers in baseball just you know, what are your overall thoughts on Cashman adjusting to, you know, whatever it seems like the Yankees need going from, you know, ramping up the analytic staff on the team. And then you mentioned signing LeMahieu, realizing they needed a contact guy. Just, you know, is that is that unique among baseball to have a general manager who is so willing to kind of get out of his own way and, and go after what seems to be working for other teams around the league? Well, I mean, I've, I've thought from the beginning, from the get-go, that, I, that Brian Cashman was an unheralded genius, and I, I don't use that word, word lightly, but he's, been, he's not had a losing season in 20 years now. This is his 21st year, and the premise of this book really was to sort of pull the curtain back and see how he's been able to accomplish this. A, how, many, how, he's, how you can string together that many winning seasons in any market, let alone New York, and B, not get fired. 
I mean, everybody in New York gets fired sooner or later. Everybody gets trashed, run out of town. You know, it happened to Tory, it happened to Girardi. Uh, and Cashman has been able to survive all that. And I said to Brian, you know, back in January when the book was about to be launched, I said, Brian, you have been overshadowed by everybody in your two decades here. You've been overshadowed by George Steinbrenner, by Joe Torre, by Derek Cheater, by Alex Rodriguez. Nobody has told your story, really, not not honestly and not in depth. And you know, it took some, it took some, you know, arm twisting to get him to say yes, because this book couldn't have happened without him giving his approval and and without him giving me unique access. He finally got it. He finally said, "Okay, you're right. I, I would like to see this book written." But he made me promise that I give credit to everybody around him: the scouting department, the analytics department, Gene Afterman, his assistant general manager. Uh, Gene Michael, you know, he passed away, but Brian Sabian, going all the way back, he made sure that everyone was recognized for their contributions in building up this very intelligent organization. But ultimately, this is about Brian, and this is about his imprint that he's put on this team, and how he's a different general manager now in the last 10 years than in the first 10 years, which those first 10 years were all about dealing with George and getting out of the way of George's tantrums. And not knowing when to pick your fights with George and when to stand down. Brian was a, a master at that. He handled George better than any of his predecessors, which is why he didn't get fired. And then ultimately when George passed away, Brian was then able to enact the vision he had for the Yankees and how a team like the Yankees should be run and how they should spend their money. So in that sense, I think he is the best and most effective general manager in baseball. Welcome back, everybody. We're joined now by Ben Lindbergh. He is a writer for The Ringer. He is the co-host of the Effectively Wild podcast on Fangraphs and now the co-author of The MVP Machine, which is just an awesome, awesome book looking into advanced data and how players are using technology and that data to um, become better players. Ben, thanks so much for coming on and talking about the book with us. Well, thank you very much for having me and for the kind words. Yeah, and uh, I think one of the most fascinating parts about the book is how there's not just examples of players using this data to appear out of nowhere and, and become good players. There's so many examples of players that were already good and decided to embrace what was you know, at their disposal, like Mookie Betts, J.D. Martinez, to name a couple. Are, are you surprised that there is still resistance in, in certain areas of baseball to try these new approaches when there's these established hitters trying them and becoming even better? Yeah, I mean, I think there's less and less resistance every year, and what resistance there is, I think, is primarily not related to the players because I think the players themselves are looking around and they're seeing their teammates change things and get better and land larger contracts, and, of course, they want to know what those guys are doing and how they can get some of that. So I think that word of mouth is spreading in clubhouses, and you have a younger generation of players coming up now who are sort of steeped in stats and came up during the Moneyball era, and they're not as knee-jerk, reflexively opposed to looking at the game that way as players in the past were. And so I think there's a lot of appetite among players for how to improve. You know, there will always be some players who just aren't wired that way and don't want to know what the numbers say, and maybe that approach is more prevalent among veterans who came up in an earlier era. But I think what resistance there is maybe is still on a team level, among coaches, you know, because that's the real change here is that coaching has been disrupted, I think, in the same way that front offices were after the Moneyball movement, where in the past you had to be a player to be a coach, for the most part, to, to coach big league players. And so I think that led to some stagnant thinking where one generation of players would be taught a certain way and then they'd become coaches and then they'd pass along what they learned and that didn't really lead to a lot of change whereas now you have outsiders without that traditional playing background who are coming in and opening minds about how best to teach players. The, the Astros chapter, which I know you actually released as an excerpt the day before the book came out on, on The Ringer, 
Um, it, it's a phenomenal piece. And, and just looking at how many prospects they turned into budding stars, do you think that kind of dominance makes teams reluctant to trade with them? I think it probably should at this point because they've taken advantage of so many teams at this point, whether it's with more obscure guys or with established guys. I mean, everyone from, you know, Charlie Morton and Colin McHugh and Ryan Presley all the way up to a Hall of Famer and Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole. You know, it's just they seem to find the flaws in players, the areas where they could potentially improve them with a simple tweak. You know, you should throw this pitch more, you should throw in this location more. And what really separates them, I think, because uh, a lot of teams probably have front office people who could do that type of analysis, but what separated the Astros is their ability to persuade players to adopt those changes and to sit them down. In the book we describe, you know, several pitchers take us through how that happened, and they were all really impressed by how the Astros communicated this information with video and heat maps, and, you know, they had front office analysts there to walk them through it, but they also had someone like Brett Strom as a 70-something baseball guy who is into the data and has been their pitching coach, and he's been a key to communicating this information too. So I think that's really been the secret to their success, and it'll be interesting to see whether that will be transferable to other organizations because, as we mentioned in the book, a lot of teams are trying to hire Astros personnel in order to, well, essentially steal some of these ideas in a a legal way, not a, a Cardinals way. So I think that they're churning out these prospects year after year. Even, you know, look at the, the draftees from last year. I think their top six college pitchers that they drafted in the 2018 draft, all of them this year are striking out at least 10 batters per nine. I think five of the six are at 11 per nine or higher. It's just they seem to know what they can improve and be able to identify identify these traits and really just maximize players' potential in, in a really impressive way. That's a good point. And, you know, team, teams have tried to replicate Houston's road to dominance by tanking and, and stockpiling prospects. We've seen a lot of that lately. But do you think that strategy becomes moot if they're not investing in technology and personnel to develop the players? They, they scout and draft as well? Yeah, I think it's partly that. It's partly that I think tanking itself is maybe less beneficial just for the draft picks. I mean, baseball draft picks, no matter how well you draft, it takes a while for them to to be polished, and most of them don't make it. So I don't think you can win through the draft alone. It helps to tank or enter a rebuilding phase or whatever you want to call it just so that you can sort of sell off your veterans and stockpile prospects that way. But if you're not keeping up when it comes to developing those prospects, then, yeah, it may not work out as well as you like and as well as it has in the past, especially because a lot of teams are adopting that approach now. So when the Astros did it and when the Cubs did it, it was still sort of new and unusual, and they could kind of take advantage of the fact that there weren't a lot of teams doing that sort of thing at the same time. Whereas now, you always have a bunch of teams that are kind of in that phase of their competitive cycle. And so I don't think you can count on coming out the other side and necessarily winning a World Series the way that the Cubs and the Astros did. And the Yankees are, are one of those teams that are competing with the Astros for American League dominance, and they didn't really have to go through a tank phase to rebuild, yet they've been so guarded with their player development process and their analytics staff. Was, was there any attempt to gain access to their operations when you and Travis were putting the book together? And, and where would you estimate the Yankees stand in terms of being – you know, ahead of this phase of player development like like the Astros. Obviously, we've seen them pull off a few trade heists in recent years. Gregorius, Hicks, Voigt, now Gio Urshela. Just where do you think they stand in, in, um, in developing players? Yeah, I think the Yankees are at or close to the cutting edge, and we don't delve deeply into their process in the book, partly because the Yankees are extremely tight-lipped, and, you know, we did submit some interview requests that were all politely denied. The Yankees just don't talk about these things, and we didn't feel the need to try to to dig in anyway, because this was less of a a team-centric book than many of the books in the Moneyball mold. This is sort of player and coach-driven, and the Astros were the big example in our book of a major league team that we profiled and devoted a a long chapter to. So beyond that, we didn't feel the need to dig into the nitty-gritty of what the Yankees are doing, but we do point out that the Yankees have the largest player development staff in all of baseball. 
velocity, developing arms. We've seen the wave of young players who've come up, and that is obviously a very scary prospect for the rest of the league when you have a team that at least has the potential to spend the way that the Yankees do, who are also doing all of this cutting-edge player development stuff. That is a really tough competition, a combination to take on, and I think that's something that sets this movement apart. When the sabermetric movement started, it was a way for low payroll teams like the A's and the Rays and the Indians to kind of get a leg up on some of the, the freer spending teams. And eventually the freer spending teams then adopted all of those innovations and it was no longer really an advantage for the small market teams. And that's what we've seen with this movement too, because the teams that were kind of ahead in the sabermetric movement were also sort of leading the charge in player development. It's not really the, the tiny teams that are sort of pacing the, the league these days. I think it's the Yankees, it's the Dodgers, it's you know the Astros to some extent. These are the teams at the vanguard of this movement. So that makes things even more difficult for teams that are trying to catch up. Although you do have teams like the Twins and the Rays who I, I think are doing a great job themselves. Hey everybody, we're joined now by an exciting guest, uh, Ryan Rucco. You can catch him on so many great platforms. The Yes Network, talking about the Yankees, talking about the Nets on the Yes Network. You can catch him on the R2C2 podcast. And you can also catch him on ESPN announcing basketball games, where he also does a great job. Ryan, thanks so much for uh, coming on and being a guest on a podcast when you're used to hosting one. Hey, I'm happy to be with you guys. You guys have always shown great support. Love you guys' work. And I appreciate you having me on. You know, I just think about your excitement announcing games and just what is it like not just announcing professional baseball, but announcing the team that you have always loved in the Yankees? Am I allowed to curse on this podcast? or you, do we? Oh, avoid no. Cursing? Let them out. Let them out. It's so <laughs> fucking cool, man. <laughs> it, 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 it is, though. I mean, it's it's so cool. Uh, I um, I. I feel like, you know, this is, you know, it's a dream I always had, you know, um, and uh, and there are a lot of different things um, I could do in this industry that would fully satisfy and stimulate me um, in the professional part of my life, um, because I do love calling uh, multiple sports and I do love, you know, multiple franchises and leagues and and networks and, and things along those lines. But there is something in my heart that's always connected to the Yankees. You know, like I, you know, I, I grew up a diehard Yankee fan. And unlike some people who get into this business um, and, and you know, understandably become jaded to the teams they rooted for, I still feel very much like a diehard Yankee fan, you know? Um, and, uh, and so to be able to call these games, um, and uh, and to know that you're a part of the experience of Yankee fans, you know what I mean? Like, because to know that some people are either in the case of radio hearing that moment come to life through my voice or on TV, helping shape the moment they're watching like that to me is the coolest thing to be able to help, like, paint those moments for Yankee fans, because I know what it's like to be on that end of things. And I love this franchise so much. And. You know, and it's cool to know, like, I've been associated with the Yankees in one way or another since I was 19. And when I walk around the stadium, I just feel so connected to everybody there. Um, you know, whether it's people who work there, people who I work with directly at Yes, the players in the clubhouse, or it's the fans, you know. So I just, I always have felt like a Yankee. And so getting to actually broadcast these games, uh, it's, it's so cool for me. It really is. And it's cool for my family, too. They get such a kick out of it. Yeah, Ryan, speaking of being connected, it's, you know, you said you grew up a diehard Yankee fan and I kind of feel like uh, we all grew up with the same era of Yankees. I think we're all about the same age, but I also think, man, I would just geek out if I were you. I mean, your friends, like you grow up, you know, you're 19 years old, so you basically grow up watching CC Sabathia and now you're friends with CC Sabathia. When you, when you, (laughs) I mean, when you brought up last or last on the last R2C2 that he texted you, you know, we're going to be friends a long time. This happens. I would have like the Michael Scott gym reaction where I'd be like best friends, you know, and what's it like (laughs) becoming friends with, with CC Sabathia, Sue Bird. I mean, you drop like, Oh yeah, Megan Rapinoe and I are, are, are good friends. I mean, like these are some (laughs) of the Titans of their sport. You go from, I'm just a fan to I'm covering them to, to now, that you've done so well in your job you've gained so much respect that you're actually friends with them does it still make you geek out at all 
Definitely, you know, definitely. I mean, I think that, um, like, my, so, like occasionally my mom uh, or or dad will say something like, "Come on, isn't it just crazy? Like, it's crazy. Like, we used to think like, oh, if you could just be like a bat boy or a ball boy for a day, how cool would that be? You know? Um, and now you're broadcasting games next to David Cohn and Paul O'Neill, who you grew up, you know, idolizing, you know, Andy Pettit knows my name. He's my favorite athlete of all time, you know, and, 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 uh, and in the case of, uh, yeah, of, of, I mean, Cece obviously has become a good friend, you know, and, uh, and it is, there's definitely a part of me that's like, I mean, it's cool. It is cool. You know, I think, um, I think all of those relationships in order for them to be genuine have to happen organically, right? Like you, you don't go into it saying like, Oh, that person's famous, cool, whatever. I want to be friends with them. It's just like, you know, you end up around each other a lot. And if you have common interests and respect for each other and what you do, you know, a lot of times you'll connect with different guys and, uh, you know, and it just, it happened really organically like that with CC and, and he's become, you know, I've gotten to witness him being a great, like the great teammate he is to his guys on the Yankees that you guys see how much they love him. He's that great teammate to me too. And I have, you know, a million examples of the way he is uh, a great teammate to me. And it is cool for me to think about like, damn man, like I was cheering this guy on, you know, you know, hoping the Yankees would sign him. And now, you know, we're boys like that is cool for me. And in the case of, you know, like Sue and Megan, like they're two of my closest friends. And so seeing like the reaction to especially Megan right now, you know, coming off the World Cup, it's hilarious seeing like we were at dinner the other night and, you know, uh, I, I was at um, my favorite restaurant, which I introduced Sue to a few years ago. She became obsessed with it, became like her favorite spot in the city. And then we introduced Megan to it in the last year and she became obsessed, uh, with it, Mark Forgione. And, um, she actually, Megan, uh, last minute before they went to France, they had like some kind of exhibition here. And, and she hit me last minute. She's like, yo, you think any way we could get in there? And she took a bunch of her team there and it was like their last supper meal, if you will, <laughs> before they went. Um, and it's the most amazing place, but giving you that background just to say, so when we went the other night, it was like, you know, people go in there, like a lot of famous people end up in there. It's a great restaurant in New York that happens. Right. And it was funny, like multiple people going up to the table to ask Megan for a picture that never happens there. You know, like, like it doesn't happen. Tom Hanks goes in there to eat. Doesn't happen. You know, Dwayne Wade's in there to eat. Doesn't happen. So it just shows you like we, the GM of the, of, um, of the restaurant, Matthew Conway and me were laughing about like, damn, that's the level Megan's reach right now. We're like, She's getting treatment. Tom Hanks isn't even getting there, but it's, you know, what's cool about it. Like, it's just, it's cool because they're like, I mean, Sue Burrow could be the coolest person on the planet, you know, like it's cool because they're cool, interesting people uh, who have beautiful hearts and, and who you, who it's just like, it's just fun getting to know those people, whether they worked in sports or otherwise, you know, and the fact that they, get exposed to these awesome experiences and get to share them with you and talk about them. It definitely becomes a really cool, awesome thing for me to experience as well. Another thing I've noticed on, on your podcast is you're probably the most positive person I've ever listened to, like about everything. <laughs> and that's great because I can sometimes be a little bit more in the other direction. I mean, how do you stay so positive about everything? Like, I feel like you like the Star Wars prequels, which a lot of people don't like. You were pretty on board. <laughs> you were pretty on board for Game of Thrones season eight, which like as it was going on, I was like, oh, no, they're ruining this. But you, you kind of kept the positivity. You kind of kept me up through the the finale. And, uh, yeah. How do you stay so positive? Well, I'm glad I was able to do that. You know, I think it's definitely a commitment of mine. I just feel like usually, you know, reaction and energy is a choice. And I always have this quote that I say, you know, would you rather be happy or would you rather be right? And I would rather be happy, you know? And so sometimes that means it's almost like when you're like, let, let's say Aaron Boone made a decision you didn't agree with. And then as it's unfolding, you like want it to not work out because you want to be right. But if it works out and the Yankees win, you're going to be happy, you know? So like, what would you rather feed into? Probably ultimately on a cool head, you'd rather be happy than be correct, you know? So I try and take that mentality um, into different areas of my life where it's just like, 
I would rather be happy than be right. And so I don't have this like incredibly fierce desire to be proven correct because I think that like the positive feeling you get from that dissipates really quickly. Like once someone admits like, yeah, you know what? You were right. Like that's not satisfying to me. You know, what's satisfying to me is being full of joy. And, um, and so, yeah, it doesn't mean I'm naive to things that are, you know, bad. Um, and like, or like, was I disappointed by the final three episodes of this season of Game of Thrones? Yes, I was disappointed. But what I think is like totally unfair and too negative is to be like, you know, oh my gosh, they ruined the entire show. Or like, you know, or for example, like for me, um, The Long Night, episode three was actually awesome. And I felt like people were like looking for reasons for it not to be at that point, you know? And it's like, I, and so I think I just try and look for the positive first before I go negative. And there are a lot of like, you know, if I'm entertained and whatever, I try, I tend to give you the benefit of the doubt. I also think I kind of like try and think of the creative process and how difficult it is. And it's hard for me to just like totally shit on someone's work, you know, like it's a, you know, and, and it's even like, even I, I, I try and make it more than that too. Like even when I, you know, when people are complaining about someone and something they do and whatever, it's like, I don't even like to say like, yeah, that person's an asshole, you know? Cause I'm like, I don't know. They probably have some good qualities in there somewhere, you know, like, it's just like this thing they're doing is asshole ish, you know, or, or whatever, you know, like, but they may not actually be that, or, or maybe there's an, there's a reason why they're behaving this way or, you know, or whatever. So, I mean, I try and take that general mentality because I think it makes for a happier life. And I do think at the end of the day, most of us, have and I'm, there are obviously some exceptions, but I think most of us, even when we do things that maybe are you know you know a little bit questionable or distasteful, most of us have a lot of uh, good percolating, and sometimes it's just better to try and understand why rather than just you know cast someone aside. And you mentioned the Game of Thrones finale and Star Wars, all things that uh, you and CC talk about on the R2C2 podcast, which comes out every Thursday. And and a happy belated to that podcast, just turned two Thank years you. old, I believe. Yep, uh, absolutely. So can you just take us back two plus years? How did this idea for the podcast come about? How did CC get on board? Just, you know, what went into making it what it is now, which is this great podcast that brings on all different Yankees. You had Mookie Betts and David Price on a couple week, weeks ago, which even despite the teams they represent, was an awesome, awesome episode. Thank you, man. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that episode because I saw a lot of people like, Ryan, how could you? This is treasonous behavior. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, this is you're going to be interested in your so-called enemy, which they're not my enemy, but like, you know, no matter what. Right. Wouldn't you rather hear a more interesting, insightful take on those guys than just like sort of a cursory glance at them? You know, and, and it also kind of shows you the commonality. Plus, I always think there's like and I'll, and I'll answer your actual question in a second. But I always think there's like this idea that, you know, if people are friendly or don't hate someone, then they can't compete against them, you know? And to me, that's absurd. Like, I don't know about you guys, but when I played sports growing up, it was mostly against my best friends. I wanted to win just as badly against them as I did anybody who I disliked, you know, it's about competition. And, and just because you like a guy or two on a given team doesn't mean you don't hate that team, you know? So I think that's the thing. Like if you ask CC, does he get great joy in beating the Red Sox? He'd say, hell yes, especially the way it felt last year. Does he, is he also still friends with David Price and Mookie Betts? Yes. Like the things are not mutually exclusive. And I think that was one thing people kind of lost uh, in the shuffle who, who were not open-minded about the podcast with Price and Betts. Thank you for being open-minded because I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Um, and, you know, CC two years ago, spring training 2017, me and him had always, like, as we got, um, you know, as we developed more and more of a relationship, we'd always talked about maybe doing something together at some point. And, um, and he was like, you know, at one point it was a radio show, and I was like, yo, we should do a podcast. And, and you know, we kind of would just talk about it. And then spring of 2017, he reached out to me. He was like, hey, let's do the podcast. And I was like, like when he's like let's do it let's do it now and i was like oh, okay and uh you know i basically was like let's have a serious conversation about it and i got on the phone and i was like look man if we do this i don't want it to be 
uh, about turning molehills into mountains the way that I think a lot of talk radio is and that the, the way I experienced talk radio in the years that I did it. You know, I don't want us making huge deals out of little things. Like I'd rather it be about storytelling and getting to know guys' personalities and things along those lines. And, and he was like, 100% cuz, that's what I want to do. What do you think? You think I want to be ripping people who I'm playing against it with? I was like, no, no, no. You know, but so we were all on, uh, we had like an hour long conversation about what our vision would be for it. And we were on the same page. And then we were like, all right, you know, where would we want to go with it? Because I knew I didn't want to like be in charge of the production because I didn't have time for that. Obviously, CC wouldn't have time for that. So we thought, you know what? Players Tribune kind of is on brand with the way we want to do this, which is empowering athletes and their message. And then eventually uninterrupted, I think, is a similar kind of message. And so we went there with that. Um, and I think the reason it's turned into what it's turned into is because of Cece and his incredible commitment to it. You know, I mean, a lot of times um, when people get involved in projects that are not their main thing, they're not invested and they let them go by the wayside really quickly. And CC has been so dedicated to this and committed and he enjoys it. Um, and because of that, we've been able to get consistency and traction and he treats it very seriously while still clearly prioritizing pitching, which he should. And while I still clearly prioritize my play by play, which I should, we both are seriously committed to getting it done and providing something to the audience that is unique. Um, and I think for both of us, it just allows us to have really interesting conversations. And, and I say the most gratifying part is literally every single person who comes on, literally all of them, when they're done, they're like, man, that was fun. I want to do that again. You know, I mean, whether it's Michael Strahan or it's Sue Bird or it's, um, you know, uh, Dee Dee or, or, you know, Aaron Judge, whoever it is, they're all like, yo, that was different. That was fun. You know, like. They just have a totally different experience, and we find that, you know, so satisfying. Like, even talking with Romine recently, he was like, bro, I looked up. I was like, what? We've already been talking for 30 minutes? Are you kidding me? This is flying by, you know? Like, so that's the best part to me is, like, seeing how much guys enjoy it. And you do a great job with R2C2. That's Ryan Rucco. Everyone can catch that podcast on Thursday mornings. You can catch his work on the Yes Network, ESPN, just all over the place. Ryan, thanks so much for taking some time. It was just great uh, getting to experience the Yankees through your lens. Hey, thank you guys for having me. I sincerely appreciate it and keep up the excellent work. We always appreciate the kind words uh, that you guys spread. And, uh, and best of luck uh, with the pod. Continued, uh, continued success for you guys.